0: Good morning. Boy, what an atmosphere here, huh? You know, when they uh, asked me to teach this morning, it was somewhat like a good news, bad news joke. The good news was, hey, it's only one sentence. I thought, I can handle one sentence. The bad news is that sentence happens to be 12 verses long. Uh, A man by the name of E. Norton, he's a, uh, a renowned Greek scholar, He says, and I quote, if I can find the quote, this is the most monstrous sentence conglomerate I have ever seen in the Greek language. And for a guy who uh, made it through high school English on the good graces of the students sitting around him, (laughs) we could be in trouble here. I still remember uh, my enjoyment, my delight, my wonder. When, as a youngster, I discovered what happens when you scratch a cattail. I'm not talking about a poor little kitten. I'm talking about the plant. When you scratch the, uh, the, uh, a dried cattail, what happens? My mother uh, had a dried flower arrangement in her dining room. And uh, as I was investigating the mysteries of life, as children who are prone to trouble do, I uh, was touching the soft surface of the uh, cattail. And I scratched it, and to my wonder, right there in the front of my fingertip, it just foamed out. And the more I scratched, the more foamed out. All these little white seed pods. And the more you scratch, it just out of this little cattail come volumes and volumes of these little white seed pods. My uh, wonder and amazement was surpassed only by my mother's. <laughs> As she walked in to her dining room to see it covered with a soft white down. Well, this uh, passage is very much like a cat tail. The more you scratch, the more comes out. And unfortunately, uh, we've only got time for a few scratches this morning. But I want to encourage you to go home and keep scratching. Keep seeing what's there because Paul really packed this sentence. This letter, the letter to Ephesus or the letter that was circulated around that area was is one of Paul's highest uh, achievements of theological discussion. In other words, what he's done here is he's taken some of the truths that he's taught elsewhere and he's packed it into these these first verses. So the riches for us here are they at least seem inexhaustible. So again, let me encourage you to keep scratching. Let's uh, begin looking at verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, this verse sets the focus of this section. Verses 4 through 14 will be uh, detailing some of these blessings that... God has blessed us with in heavenly places in Christ. And even as, as Paul describes these blessings, you'll see, though, that the focus is really back on who God is. Paul uses terms in uh, in verse 4. He says, He chose us. Verse 5, He predestined us according to the kind intention of His will. Verse 6, To the praise of His, his grace, which He freely bestowed. Verse 7, the riches of his grace. Eight, he lavished upon us. Nine, he made known to us his kind intention. And verse 11, according to his purpose, his will, to the praise of his glory. Paul keeps our attention even as he's describing these these wonderful gifts of God. He keeps our attention on the wonderful giver. And that needs to be kept in mind even as we investigate these blessings that God has given us. We need to repeatedly just stop and say this is to the praise of his glory he is worthy of our praise he is gracious his kindness is the focus his undeserved favor that he's kind to us he gave us these things even though we don't deserve them okay before we get into um uh, the, the first phrase here he says blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who blessed us with all these spiritual blessings When Paul says, blessed be, what he's actually doing is calling his readers to bless God. How can we, who are the giveees, the recipients, bless God, the one who gives? I mean, we're the ones with the needs. He's the one that has it all. So how can we possibly bless him? What do we have to give him? There are several ways that that come to mind. Let's uh, discuss a couple of them. First of all, the word to bless uh, really means, uh, part of the the base meaning of the word is to speak highly of. So what Paul is calling us to do is to praise God. Now, The other day I was uh, at Elmer's with a bunch of uh, college students. I was having a nice large piece of coconut cream pie. And one girl sitting next to me said, I want to ask you a question. Why does God all the way through Scripture demand that we praise him? Doesn't just the fact that he asks for that praise ruin it? Doesn't it seem kind of petty that he should demand that we praise him? And realize she wasn't being blasphemous. She wasn't being flippant. She was seriously trying to deal with what she saw in Scripture and to understand. And it's a legitimate question. Does God need his ego stroked by us? Obviously not. Realize what we have here is Paul calling us and everyone who reads this letter to join him in praise. And praise is the natural, inevitable, irresistible outflowing of enjoyment. That Paul is realizing how wonderful God is and he is praising him. When you see a a beautiful mountain, beautiful sunset, you've got to say, isn't that incredible? Even if no one's there, you've got to say it. In fact, just the the vocalization of it enhances our enjoyment. That we enjoy by praising. And not only that, we enjoy it even more when there's somebody to share that praise with. If you read a good book or see a good movie, you enjoy the movie more. You enjoy the book more just by having somebody next to you to say, wasn't that a neat movie? Wasn't that a neat book? And your enjoyment is enhanced. So rather than being petty of God, this is just another sign of his generosity that he condescends to command us to do what really makes us happy. That he loves us that much to say, "Okay, you should be doing this naturally, but I need to tell you, because the way you're really going to enjoy me, the way you're going to enjoy me to the fullest is if you praise me. So I'm going to command you to praise me so you'll do it and so you'll really enjoy. And that's, again, expression of his love. The second uh, way we bless God that I want to talk about this morning uh, comes from the the idea of blessing God who has blessed us, who's given us all these things. How do you bless somebody who's giving you something? If my wife uh, were to give me a very special Christmas present that she worked hard on, that was expensive in time and effort and herself, and was going to be terribly useful to me, It was really going to enhance my life. How could I bless her? Well, thanks, eh? Throw it on the couch, go back to the game. All you husbands who are nodding are in serious trouble. (laughs) Now, I bless her by considering it, by looking at it, by realizing how valuable it is, what it cost her to give it to me, and what it's going to do in my life. And I use it. The more I use it, the more blessed she is. Again, this is a sign of God's generosity. That he enjoys us enjoying. Now, that's a sign of a healthy person whose joy is enhanced by others' joy. It's the petty, it's the ones that need their ego stroked, whose joy is diminished by the fact that other people are enjoying. Now, God wants us to enjoy what he's given us. And in our enjoying it, he gains pleasure. So realize that that you, you have God here In a sense, calling us to enjoy Him fully. And calling us to enjoy what He's giving us fully. Now, before we get into the the details of the blessings, I want to uh, look at a phrase that uh, was a considerable disappointment to me at first. He says, these blessings were given to us in the heavenly places in Christ. Last week, David uh, uh, told you what in Christ meant. It means that those of us who are Christians have been placed in Christ. We're so identified with Christ that what's true of him is true of us. God loves me. Why? Because I'm such a lovable guy? No, because he loves his son, Jesus Christ, and I'm in him. Therefore, God loves me. I'm a son of God. Why? I wasn't born that way. I was born a son of Adam. But I'm in Christ. So what's true of Christ is true of me. Therefore, I'm a son too. And this, in in essence, really is the gospel. The gospel that Paul preached. That through faith, you and I can be placed in Jesus Christ. Can be so identified with Jesus Christ that what's true of Him is true of us. We gain all the privileges of sonship, of a relationship with God. But we also gain all the responsibilities of having the fact that we are in Christ dictate our purpose in life, our goals, the way we live, the choices we make. So what he's saying here, Paul is actually saying, "In Christ, he's saying this is referring, this is available, this is what is given to all of us who are Christians, who are actually in Christ." Now the, the phrase that bothered me was, "In heavenly places." If you've got a new international version, I think it says, "in heavenly realms." Literally, the heavenlies. Well, you and I live in the earthlies. (laughs) You drive an earthly car. You go to an earthly job. You have an earthly family, an earthly toothache, an earthly life. So what possible good are heavenly blessings to people who live in the earthlies? You know, I think this question, uh, more than any other question, has kept people back from enjoying everything that's available to us in Christ. Because when we address this question, we usually come up with an answer that writes these things off. Either we think this is far away, maybe after we die or after Christ comes, or uh, more often we give it a a new name. We say, oh, well, these are uh, positional truths. These deal with the spiritual realm. We don't understand that any more than we understand the heavenlies. But the fact that we've given it a new name, we feel like we've done something with it. But in essence, what we've done is said these are either unreal or at least irrelevant to our lives. You know, I've I've got to confess I've I've done that. One uh, instance is in verse 20 of of this chapter. Paul describes God raised Christ from the dead. And seated him at the right hand of God in heavenly places. And and what he means by seated at the right hand of God is that Christ is in the position of highest authority in heavenly places. Okay, and then in verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul applies the principle that what's true of Christ is true of us. And he says, We've been raised up and seated with Christ. Therefore, we are in a position of highest authority in heavenly places. I look at my life. My two-year-old daughter doesn't obey me. What authority do I have? And I end up saying, well, this is a positional truth. This is a spiritual realm. And I end up going on with my life as if this wasn't even written. You know, are these things really divorced from reality? I think Paul uh, argues that they're not. Let me look at another verse in Ephesians. Ephesians 6.12 Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, because it's not physical, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Where do we come in contact with these cosmic bad guys? Where do we feel their effect? You feel it in your emotions. In your thoughts, in your imaginations, in your intellect, in your will. That's where we come in contact with the heavenly places. And Paul's arguing that this is really the heart of life. The fact is, this is where the quality of yours and my life is determined. That's where you either find peace or dissatisfaction. Joy or frustration. You know, there's a lot of people who have a lot of money and a lot of physical comfort who have no joy or are completely dissatisfied. Yet at the same time, a martyr whose body is on fire, who's being burned, overflows with joy and peace. Because these things aren't decided outside. These things are decided inside, in the heavenlies. So you see, the heavenlies are really the heart of our lives. It's not that we're not living in the earthlies as well. But we can't spend all our time in the earthlies. We've got to give some of our attention to the heavenlies to realize what's going on inside us. To realize that's where the quality of our life is decided. That's where the quality of our relationships is decided. And realize That that's where we feel, that's where we're aware of God's presence. That's where we enjoy these blessings. So they're very practical. Also realize that non-Christians have this same contact with the heavenlies. It's not unique to Christians. They feel the same things we do. They go through the same temptations, same imaginations, same thoughts. But they're there without these blessings, without these resources. Well, we need to take advantage of what we have in Christ and not function as if we didn't. We need to be aware of the heavenlies, giving it attention, becoming adept at using these resources. You've heard the phrase, so heavenly-minded that he's no earthly good. That's hogwash. In order to be any earthly good, you've got to be totally heavenly-minded. In other words, you've got to take advantage of our relationship with God, of the resources that are there, so that our lives, our earthly lives, are manifest by love, by patience, by wisdom. The only way we're going to be any good to the people around us is if we are heavenly minded. Enough of that. Let's, uh, let's begin to take uh, a scratch at each of these um, blessings. Blessings. Verse 4 through 6 is really one thought. He says, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That is, before the world was created, He chose us in Christ. Notice again how verse 5 starts, too. That's actually a participle. Having predestined us. Now realize Paul is not getting into the predestination free will issue, so we're not going to either. What Paul is doing is saying that you, personally, and I, personally, individually, were chosen before the foundation of the world. We're part of God's plan. None of you, none of, I'm not, none of us are last-minute add-ons. We needn't be embarrassed when it comes to getting in line for these blessings. We're, I think, somehow afraid that when I get up to the front of the line, he will say, what are you doing here? How did you get in? Oh, wow. Okay, you can, you can stay, but go back to the back of the line. That's not true. From the foundation of the world, you personally, individually were part and an important part of God's plan. So get to the front of the line for these blessings. They're yours. God wants you to have them. He's planned for you to have them. Okay, Paul says more. He says He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Holy and blameless before Him. Those words holy and blameless uh, are Old Testament terms. They refer to things that are acceptable to God. The holy things were the the things that were God's and God's alone. And blameless uh, describes a, a sacrifice, a goat or a sheep or a dove that had no flaws. Therefore, God could accept it. And he says the plan from the beginning was that you and I should be acceptable to God. You and I should be welcome before Him. Now, I know that I am not without flaw. I am not blameless. So how can I possibly be acceptable? And I think verse uh, 6, or excuse me, 5, elaborates. Having, by having predestined us To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. He adopted us. In Christ were his sons, his daughters. And he loves us as his family. Ask any parent of an adopted child that they're loved every bit as much as a natural child. So he loves us, and this is the most incredible fact in this entire book. That he loves us every bit as much as he loves Jesus Christ. That we are his children. And we're welcome, every bit as welcome as Jesus Christ because we are in Christ. And therefore, what's true of him is true of us. That this is how, how generous, how kind our God is. Okay, now, how is this relevant? How is this applicable? Well, Satan would have all of us feel that God is a long ways off. Well, I've just uh, yelled at my kids. God doesn't want to see me. He's disgusted with me. It'll take uh, at least a week of prayer and Bible study before he's ready to see me. You know, we really think these things. But it's not true. You, right now, right then, are as welcome as Jesus Christ. God is as close as the heavenlies. When this feeling comes, you stop. You become aware of the heavenlies. You say, God is right here. And you become aware of His presence and His acceptance. You remind yourself that you're acceptable to Him. And you revel in that. You enjoy that. You allow that to overwhelm you. Not only are we always... And totally welcome before God. But he also frees us from the need to, to do these things that make us feel unwelcome. When we yell at our kids. Or we spend all that time in lustful imaginations. Or we give in to the feeling or the desire to be grumpy and cranky all day and complain. He frees us. From the need to do these things. I think that's what he's talking about in verse 7. In him we have redemption. That is, we've been bought back. That's what the word redemption means. To be bought back. Through his blood. It was expensive. Realize God takes this very seriously. Jesus Christ physically, in the earthlies, bled for this. Died for this. So we can't look at it and say, thanks a lot, throw it on the couch, go back to watching the game. We've got to realize this is an expensive gift. We've got to appreciate it. We've got to realize how valuable it is to us. We've got to use it. He elaborates on the idea of redemption in in, in the latter part of the verse, saying, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The word forgiveness means to be released. Released from the penalty, the, the guilt. But I believe also released from the obligation to do these things. So that when the temptation comes, again we stop. And we say, I don't have to do this. I've been given authority in the heavenly places, inside, in my mind, in my thoughts, in my emotions, in my, in my desires. And I can say, I don't have to do this. And you don't. Boy, again, this is is as practical as life gets. When I'm I'm tempted to be angry at my wife, I can say, no, I don't have to be. I can be loving, even though I've never seen anybody be this loving before. (laughs) This isn't the way you love. I mean, there's limits. But no, I say, I don't have to do that. I can be loving. I don't have to complain. I can stop. I can enjoy God's presence. I can exalt in His blessings and have my whole outlook changed. So again, these are eminently are practical. Verse 8 picks up on um, the idea of, of grace, which refers to the grace. This grace he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. But this is one of Paul's favorite blessings. That God has given us the ability to understand what's going on. Wisdom and insight refer to the ability to understand why people do what they do. We don't have to just scratch our head and say, Boy, people are weird. Why do they do these kind of things? We don't have to to be overwhelmed. What's going on in this world? The Soviets and the Americans got all their missiles lined up. In Lebanon, people are just wiping each other out. What's going on in this world? God has given us the ability to to understand. And Paul really enjoys this gift. Well, how has he given us this ability? Again, verse 9, if you look at your footnote, if you've got a New American Standard, is a participle. I think it explains how. By making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention. That is, according to his good pleasure. That's what it means. Which he purposed in him. The way he made these things known to us is by letting us know what his plan was, what his will is. You see, people are, are. uh, it's necessary for people who don't know him, who don't trust this revelation, to come up with philosophies to explain why people do what they do, what's going on in the world. Thus we have, you know, all kinds of philosophies, uh, Marxian economics, behaviorism, evolution, all these philosophies are attempts to explain what's going on in the world and why are people the way they are. But these things can never explain what's going on. Because it's not being run according to a philosophy. It's being run according to God's good pleasure. His choices. His will. And unless he tells us what's going on, there's no possible way we could know what's going on. So you see, this is is, is how he's, he's helped us see where history is going. That there is a plan. That that plan is God's choice. In verse 10 describes this plan. Unfortunately, in uh, New American Standard, this is a very difficult verse. It's really not a difficult idea. It's just a difficult wording. What happened was the uh, translators realized there were so many options for interpreting this verse that they kind of had to say, well, here's at least what we can all agree on. Let's make it totally ambiguous, and that way we won't step on any toes. And so you read it, and it says, with a view toward the administration, uh, suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, things in earth, and you go, what does that mean? That's ambiguous. Well, let's just walk through it, because I don't think it's a difficult concept. He says this uh, revelation of, of the mystery of His will, that is, the secret of His will, is regarding with a view to, just means that, it, that, that this is what it's about. An administration. An administration simply means a plan. We live under the Reagan administration in the United States right now. In other words, things are being run according to Reagan's plans. And that's all he's saying. A plan for an overall plan. An overall direction. He's saying this revelation of the will of God is concerning this overall plan that at the fullness of times, is suitable to the fullness of times. In Galatians uh, 4, 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. This term, in the fullness of time, means when the time was right. And it's referring to that time which God sent His Son in history. So he's saying that, that, that the revelation of, of the secret is regarding God's plan. That plan involved at the right time sending Jesus, sending Christ, to, to be born, to suffer, to die under Pontius Pilate, to be raised from the dead, and to be seated in authority in the heavenlies, and to bring everything together in Christ. That's what the, the idea of summing all things up, bringing it all together. All of history up to to Christ's first coming was directed at Christ's first coming. We can understand what history is about because we know that's what was happening. And all of history from then on is focused now on his second coming. And we can understand that. But more importantly, we know that what God brings together in Christ is man and himself that we can have a relationship with God in Christ. And He brings together man and man, people from countries and nationalities and regions that hated each other for centuries, for generations, in Christ love each other and put each other's interests above their own. He's bringing it together. And families that have been destroyed can be brought back together in Christ. And even personalities can be brought back together in Christ. And I think this is the heart of it, of bringing things together in Christ. But we could go on. I mean, we could shoot in any direction. Eventually, the ecology is going to be brought back together in Christ. The destruction, the, the, the exploitation that is now suffering due to the sinfulness of man will someday be reversed. That process is started now in the fact that He's affecting our lives, helping us to see that we can't live that way, we can't destroy. But it will be culminated... At His second coming, when He restores it, when He creates the new heavens and new earth. The judgment will bring everything together. Justice will be brought together. It just any direction you choose to go, all things in heaven and in earth are brought together in Christ. So God has this, this cosmic plan. And it keeps us from being overwhelmed by what's going on. By saying, boy, it looks like it's all fallen apart. And it does. It looks like the world is ruled by chaos. But we know God has revealed His plan. And that plan is here. To bring everything in cr- together in Christ. And not only is it a cosmic plan, but He's got a personal plan. Look at verse 11. He says, Also, or in Him, starting at the end of verse 10, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance. Uh, That word inheritance is a very interesting one. It can refer to the things that come to you because of a will, the death of a loved one or a relative. But it can be more broad everything that comes your way in life, your lot, literally, your destiny. What Paul is saying here is your destiny has been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. The details of your life are being brought together according to His plan, with the result that, to the end, that we who are the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory, that our lives should glorify Him. So you see, we get the key to understanding the flow of history, the broad schemes of reality, but we also have the key to understanding our life. Not necessarily understanding why each event in history happens or why each event in our lives, the disasters that happen to us, the death of loved ones, the sicknesses, or even the good things. We don't necessarily understand why it happens, but we know that God has a plan for it all. And it's all working together for his purpose. And that is a comfort. That's a great comfort not to need to be wringing our hands about history. Not to need to be overwhelmed by the destruction that comes into our lives. We've been freed from that. And the reason we've been freed from that is not to just sit back and lethargically say, Oh, it'll take care of itself. God's in control. I don't need to worry. No, the reason he freed us from that is so that we can be undistracted by the circumstances of our lives to focus on responding to his love by loving other people. Regardless of what's going around on in the world around us, regardless of what's going on in my life, I can say, God has it under control. It's hurting, but I know He's got it under control, and my attention can be moved off myself onto the people around me. Boy, again, how practical can you get? We're freed up from these distractions. We're freed up from having every detail that happens from the minute the children get up in the morning to the minute you stop fighting with your husband at night. We can be freed from these circumstances, having our lives controlled by this, and say, no, what's going on is according to God's plan, and I can respond to Him in love. And I can respond to that love of His by loving the people around me. Again, it's great freedom. If you're um, suffering a, a little bit of brain strain right about here, all this stuff coming at you, the mysteries of Christ and the plan to bring it all together and all these implications kind of shooting off into left field and coming together. Don't worry. This is, quite literally, uh, these are our are mind-blowing concepts. They, are, they were for Paul. That's why in verse 8 he uses the term uh, he lavished upon us. That term lavish means to fill up and overflow. The best picture I can think of is my two-year-old daughter pouring a two-quart pitcher of apple juice into a three, uh, three-ounce toy teacup. It fills up, and it starts to spill, and it starts to overflow, and it pours over the floor. And when we confront these truths, and we start to investigate some of the implications, we start scratching the cattail. Pretty soon, our comprehension fills up, and it starts to overflow, and we just kind of have a glimpse at what's going on. But unlike uh, that toy teacup, which stays three ounces no matter how many times she tries to pour that apple juice in it, when we spend time meditating on these things, going over and over, thinking deeply, and, being, and willing to, to go through the discomfort of having it overflow, because that, that's uncomfortable. We want to catch it all. And we want to have it into a nice, tight little package. But we need to give up that and to be willing to go through the discomfort of reaching the limits of our understanding and letting it overflow a little. And the more we do that, the more the capacity of our cup increases. And the more implications we begin to see. And the greater our appreciation of our awesome God who's given these things to us. And the greater our praise, the greater our enjoyment. So let me encourage you again to keep meditating on these things, to go back over them, to try... To come to grips in your life, what it means that all things are being brought together in Christ. To come to grips in your life, what it means that your destiny has been predestined. Okay, we have one more blessing in the time uh, left to us. Verses 13 and 14. He says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed... You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit who was promised. What he's saying is, having heard the gospel, having heard that by trusting God, you can be placed into Christ. By saying, God, I trust you enough to give my life over to you, to gain my views of life, to gain my purpose in life, to gain my priorities in Christ, and to trust Christ for my relationship with you, for my identity, for my relationship with other people. When realizing the, the, the gospel, you put your trust in Him, and have been stamped with the mark of ownership. That word "seal," you've been sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit, who was promised. It means that you've been stamped. You're God's. You've got His mark on you. You're His possession. It says in the the next verse, verse fourteen, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, that's you and I, to the praise of His glory. That that word given as a pledge of our inheritance, the word pledge means a, a down payment, some earnest money, a deposit. In a sense, you and I are on layaway. And God has already invested so much in our purchase that there's no possible way he's going to back out now. You know, Satan would have us think, that's one too many sins. God's finished with me. Or that's one too many times at that same sin. God's finished with me. But you can't sin enough to make it worth it to God to renege. Because he has invested so much. And the fact that you have the Holy Spirit in you is proof that He will never back out. And that Holy Spirit, the way we know that Holy Spirit is there, not because we have uh, all these uh, manifestly supernatural gifts where we can walk on fire or water or do things that nobody else can do. That's not how we know the Holy Spirit is there. That's neat if the Holy Spirit gives us these things, but that's not how we know He's there. The way we know He's there is because He puts in our hearts a desire to be God's. A desire to be freed from these things, these sins, these trespasses. A desire to be everything God can make us into. And that's how you know the Holy Spirit's there. And this desire that He is building in your life and developing is proof that God will finish the job He started. That He'll never give up on you. Well, we um, were able to scratch... A few scratches, and I've encouraged you to take the time to keep scratching. But even these things that we have looked at this morning, they should lead us to praise. Lead us to marvel at how generous, how kind God has been to us. And they should lead us to appreciate just how valuable these things He's given us, these blessings are. And how worthwhile it is to look at them closely, to consider their cost, to consider their value, and to use them. And realize these don't come naturally. We don't naturally spend time in the heavenlies. We don't naturally spend time realizing God's presence, feeling it, knowing it's there. We naturally tend to deal only with the earthlies. And allow our emotions to be controlled by the earthlies. And our thoughts to be controlled and dominated by the earthlies. But we don't have to. We can spend the time being aware of God's presence. Investigating these things. Meditating on them. So let's just stop now and praise Him. Father, we do want to bless you. You are so generous that you take our lives and cause them to work for the glory of your grace, to show off how, how good you are. And God, we want to appreciate you fully, enjoy you fully. Help us to remember to be praising you, to verbalize our appreciation of you and thus enjoy you even more. And Lord, we see reason here to marvel at your goodness. Just these, these gifts that you've given us. And I just confess personally how frequently I disregard them. How I treat them as if they were cheap toys. Lord, I ask that you you teach me to enjoy them fully. To spend time thinking about them. To use them and grow skillful at using them. We want to do this because we do want to bring praise to your name. We do want to glorify you in our lives. So we just ask that you do these things in us. And we praise you. Continue to praise you in your son's name. Amen.